John chapter 6. And as you're turning there, uh, this morning we're going to cover a lot of ground. I typically don't like to go through so much text, but I just really want you to see the big picture of John chapter 6. And so uh, we'll go ahead and we'll open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll give you a little bit of background, then we'll dive into our text. Father, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for these precious people, Lord, who, uh, Lord, you've drawn here. And, uh, Father, that your spirit has and is doing a a, a work. And, Father, we realize that, uh, Lord, you desire to use your word to transform us this morning, to reveal your heart to us, to open our understandings and renew our minds. And, God, we just thank you that when you began that work in us, Lord, you're going to be faithful to complete it. And uh, God, so we just pray that your spirit would um, just use your word this morning, Lord, that he would uh, glorify Jesus and that we'd leave here transformed in your presence, Lord. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Just to give you a background, you know, I know Calvary Chapel, we we like to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, The challenge is when you are going to do uh, a one-time teaching, you, you don't get to do that. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of background that leads up to chapter 6. Um, Jesus, in a sense, is in the best of times and in the worst of times, to steal the phrase from Charles Dickens. Uh, we'll see in chapter, if you would read chapter 5, you would see that he's in Jerusalem, and uh, he heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem are not very happy when this happens for two reasons. Number one because Jesus does it on the Sabbath. And in their understanding of how things work, that was a no-no. And I believe Jesus did it on purpose on the Sabbath. In fact, sometimes you, look, you read the Gospels and you think, man, Jesus, did you have to do it this way? Uh, because many times it incites people in a, in a response, and that's the point. You know, you can't be neutral with Jesus. And so they're angry with him because he heals on the Sabbath. They're also angry with him because he makes himself one with the Father. And they realize his claim to deity. You know, there are many people today that say Jesus never said he was God in the flesh, and I guess they've never read John, right? Because it's all throughout the scriptures. And so the Jewish people, when they hear Jesus making statements, they want to kill him. And Jesus will still, in the midst of that, he'll teach them, he'll remind them that John the Baptist was a witness to who he was. He reminds them that the Father himself was a witness of his person, that ultimately the word of God all pointed to him. And Moses, who these Jewish people would have revered and loved and respected, he reminds them it was Moses who spoke of him. And he said, look, you guys have the scriptures. You've been reading it your whole life. But it's in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. And so Jesus shows them it all points to him, and yet they want to kill him. And what amazes me is he says this. He says, I say these things to you that you may be saved. Even in the the midst of their hatred and their desire to kill him, he's still speaking the truth to them that they may be saved. And so that's chapter 5. It's a chapter where Jesus is a wanted man. They want to kill him. Chapter 6, John shows us a very different picture. And chapter 6 begins in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel, um, which was Jesus' ministry headquarters. And in chapter 6, we see there's great multitudes flocking towards Jesus. Very different from chapter 5. 
And all these multitudes are following him because of the signs that he's done, because of the sickness that he's healed. And I don't know about you, if someone was walking around like him, uh, healing the sick, I'm pretty sure that person would have a pretty big following today, right? Twitter would be blowing up. (laughs) Everyone would be trying to get FaceTime with that person, probably. I think Jesus knew when the right time to come was. Um, But anyhow... People are flocking to Jesus because of what he's doing. And you see here, he has compassion on people at the beginning of chapter 6. There's uh, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, who Jesus will feed with five loaves of bread and two fish. That's a miracle. Five loaves of bread, two fish, 5,000 men plus women and children. And so he does that miracle. And after that miracle, we see the, the Jewish people in Galilee Some of them say that, well, this guy's the prophet. This guy's it, man. This is who we've been waiting for. Others, Jesus perceives, want to make him, by force, their king. And so that gives us a background as we get to our text this morning. Uh, What happens, though, when the people want to make Jesus a king is that he ends up uh, actually sending his disciples into a boat. They get it into their boats, go across the Sea of Galilee, And Jesus goes up into the mountain to be alone. And the text doesn't tell us why he does that. I think if you've read the Gospels, you know he's probably spending time with the Father. I mean, think about the whirlwind that Jesus experienced. One group wants to kill him, and the other group wants to make him king. And how do you respond to that? And so he spends time with the Father, and then we find him walking on the water at night, and he encounters the disciples. They think he's a ghost. They're terrified. Peter walks on the water by faith, and then miraculously they get to the other side in the boat. And so that brings us to our text. We're going to begin in John 6, 22 this morning. On the following day, that is the day after Jesus had fed everyone, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone alone. However, the other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And so the people who Jesus had just fed, think about it, 5,000 men, plus women and children, they're looking for Jesus. They don't know where he's went, where he went. And so they realize he sent the disciples across the sea, but they can't find him. And so they find these boats from Tiberias, which causes them to get in the boats, go across the sea, where they finally encounter Jesus. I don't know about you, I look at these people and I think, wow, these people are sold out for him, right? I mean, they're getting into a boat, and when you see where they went from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to the west... They're going anywhere from six to eight miles just to see Jesus. And I would look at this as like a modern-day Billy Graham discipleship extravaganza at this point. I'd be excited if this was the case. You see all these people flooding in, you know, the church would be excited if that was the case. But we're going to see Jesus' response. Notice their response when they finally find him in verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? And so that's their question. Let's see Jesus' response. Jesus answered them and said, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, I want to point out something as you look at the text here. Does Jesus answer their question? Does he answer their question? Remember, their question is, when did you come here? (laughs) How did you get here? And I said this earlier, if that was me, I think this is a pretty good time to tell these people I walked on the water. Like, if you're trying to draw a crowd, I don't think too many people can do that. Except maybe Bruce Almighty, right? (laughs) It's a joke. It's a movie. I know it's a movie. (laughs) But he walked on water. And yet he doesn't say that, does he? What's his response? Why does he respond the way that he does? See, I believe it's because Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that the reason why they came, why they got into that boat and sailed across the Sea of Galilee is because their bellies were filled. And guess what? They're hungry again. And they went all that distance just to find Jesus. And yet his word, he answered them, but he didn't answer their question, did he? In fact, he actually gets to the heart of the issue here. He tells them why they've come. And so many times in my life I've seen where I have a question for the Lord. And, you know, you you think you even know the answer before you ask the question sometimes. And I remember when I was first saved, I was saved when I was a student at Penn State. um, And I got heavy into the drinking scene And uh, I thought that's where the life was, and it showed me that definitely was not where the life was. Um, But anyhow, I got saved, and um, after I stopped drinking, I I had panic attacks on a regular basis. And if anyone's ever had a panic attack, you know it's your your, your body is going into overdrive, anxiety through the roof. You want to jump out of your skin. Uh, And so I would, in in a social setting, I'd I'd be freaking out. Uh, There's no way I could speak in front of people. And I remember I would go two miles from class to my my apartment at the time rather than get on a bus full of people. And I would sit in the back if I was in a place like this. I didn't want anyone to talk to me or look at me or even think about me. And I remember I would beg Jesus, Lord, please take this away from me. Please, Lord, take this anxiety away. And I prayed for a couple months for that. And I'll never forget, I was in my, my room and I remember the Lord spoke to me. It wasn't audible. I don't want to sound super spiritual. But his spirit spoke to me so clearly in my heart. And he said, Luke, I want you to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he answered me. That wasn't the answer I wanted. Because I wanted him to just say, Luke, boop, you're healed. (laughs) Never have to worry about anxiety again. And I wrestled with what he said to me. But, you know, as I began to receive that word and I began to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to love you with everything I have. I'm going to, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to be in my word. I'm going to serve others. I remember I found a soup kitchen there to serve people at. And the most amazing thing began to happen as I began to focus on him and serving others. For the first time in my whole life, Luke Miller was not the center of the universe. And as I began to get my eyes off myself onto him and others, the anxiety and the panic attacks just began to subside. Now, I was sharing with one of you earlier um, 
if Luke gets back on the throne today, guess what? See, he's delivered me, but in the flesh I can go back into that bondage. That's a humbling thing. And he's really taught me every single day, we need the Lord, don't we? Every single day we need to depend on him. You can't live on yesterday's bread. Like these people, they're, they're searching, they're seeking him out. He knows their hearts. And, and that's the danger, too, with biblical counseling at times. You know, people come to us sometimes. Maybe they know you're a Christian. And they say, you know, I have anxiety. You know, I don't know what to do. And, and, you know, being the good Christian, we know our Bibles. We say, well, turn to Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. And we quote that scripture as if the Bible is this uh, just medicine book. You know, it's the DSM, spiritually speaking, or something. And uh, it doesn't work that way, does it? Because maybe their issue is a different issue than anxiety. Like me, my anxiety was just a surface-level issue. My issue was my heart. And aren't we, don't we praise the Lord? He deals with our hearts. He speaks to our hearts, and that's what he does here to the people. He knows their hearts, and he knows they were not following him because of signs. In other words, the signs should have pointed them to him and who he was. And yet they let the sign become the end in of itself. They just looked at the food. Man, this guy gave us bread. Let's follow him. Free bread, right? And so the signs were meant to point them to him, and he's showing them they missed it. They stopped short of what the sign pointed them to. Verse 27, if you'll go there, notice what Jesus says here. Do not labor for the food which perishes, right? They just traveled six to eight miles but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Notice that. He says he's going to give it to them because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Didn't Jesus just tell them he was going to give it to them? And yet these people are asking him, well, what should we do? We want to work this work of God. And that's not what he said. And Jesus answered, said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And therefore they said to him, well, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, wait a minute, time out. This brother just healed some of you. He just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And you're asking him, yeah, we'll believe you, but show us a sign. Do you think they really want to know? I mean, at this point in the, in the text, do you think they really want to know who he really is? Asking for another sign. Isn't it Jesus that said a wicked and a perverse generation seeks after a sign? So obviously the Lord knows where, we're, where they're going with this, and, and they're actually going to shoot themselves in their own foot because notice verse 31. They say, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread to eat. Or he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they're quoting Exodus 16 here. And this is amazing because they're setting themselves up. Okay, I don't know about you, have you ever set yourself up for Jesus where you think one thing and then he just totally switches the things on you? Because that's what they're doing here. They're, they're trying to hold him to a standard that he's going to actually flip on them and show them that they're the ones who are wrong. Because in Exodus 16, 
Uh, Israel has been delivered from Egypt. They were in bondage. They were enslaved. Uh, and God uses Moses to deliver them from Egypt. And after their deliverance, it doesn't take very long for them to start complaining, does it? Because pretty soon these people are hungry. They want to eat. And they start complaining, telling Moses, man, we were better off in Egypt. You, you should have just left us there to die. At least we had food. At least we had the things that we needed there. We're going to die out here in the wilderness. And the text reveals, as they complain to Moses, who is it that they're really complaining against? They're really complaining against God. Because it was God who delivered them, right? It was God who set them free. And the thing is this. This was the sign that God gave Israel that showed them that he had called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. They forgot all about the sign God had performed through Moses and their deliverance from Egypt. And in the same way, these people who are asking Jesus for a sign missed the point. They missed the fact that everything that Jesus did, the signs that he showed them, pointed them that God had called him to bring deliverance to them. And so they're falling into this trap that they're ask, actually asking Jesus to do. They're showing that they're no different from their forefathers, the Israelites, who complained and murmured and were, and were you know, missing the signs of God's deliverance all in their history. And in the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary, these Jewish people probably believed that the former uh, redeemer Moses caused manna to fall, so the latter redeemer would also cause manna to fall. So the Jewish people were waiting for a second redeemer like Moses. And they thought just as Moses caused manna to come down from heaven, so would the second redeemer. But Jesus is going to get to the heart of, their, uh, of the issue in verse 32. Notice in verse 32 what he says here. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, he's correcting them here. It wasn't Moses who caused that manna to come down from heaven, was it? Who gave it to them? It was the Father. And just as the Father caused the manna to come down from heaven, so the Heavenly Father also gave Jesus, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And he's showing them they're, they're off, they're wrong in their thinking. And he continues, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, and here's our beauty here, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you ever hear that text before? I am the bread of life. And so here's what he's showing them. They had just traveled six to eight miles for bread. And Jesus is telling them, I am the bread. I'm the one who you're really looking for. You're so caught up in the, this thing that you eat it one day, you need it the next day, and you're still going to perish. And, and he's saying, I am the bread of life. I am who you're looking for. I am the one who's going to supply for your needs. In other words, they sought his hand instead of seeking his face. And this is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus will say. 
And I actually minister in Altoona uh, at the Salvation Army. I speak to men who are coming out of addiction. And, you know, many of these men, they're, they're bound. Their life is a mess. It's in chaos. And they come to the, mission, or the Salvation Army and they say, you know, I've tried this to get rid of my addiction. I've tried that. Let me try Jesus. But the problem is, they want Jesus to deliver them from their addiction, but they don't want him to be the bread. I want to be free. I want to be set free. And so they'll say, well, I want to make Jesus my higher power, as if he's one higher power ab amongst others, right? But the, what does the word say? It says he's the God most high. He won't share his glory with any man. And so, so often I can see in my life, you know, Lord, I want the bread. I want the bread. And in my prayer time, when you think about your prayer time, what are the things that you ask for from the Lord? Are you seeking him for him? Or am I always seeking the handout? Lord, give me the bread. Give me the bread. When in fact, maybe what we're really looking for is him. You know, Augustine said, our hearts are always restless until they find our rest in thee. And he's going to get to the heart of the issue in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. What's the issue that he's getting at here? They don't believe. See, remember where we started. 5,000 people fed, crossing the Sea of Galilee. It looks amazing. But Jesus understands their heart. You don't believe. You're seeking me with the wrong motive. You're looking at the person, and yet you're, you're, you're so close, yet so far away. They are in the presence of God, and they don't even know it. They're right there, the Savior of the world. I mean, they can look in his eyes. They've seen the signs, and they don't believe. How devastating is this? How sad Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. That's a precious promise, amen? What a precious promise to realize that all that the Father has given Jesus, he will by no means cast us out. If you turn to Jesus, maybe you never have before, if you turn to him, he will not turn you away. But he will show you your motive, won't he? And sometimes our motives are off. And he will raise that person up in the last day, verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained, and, and, and John's using very specific language here. He's reminding us, because what did the Israelites do with Moses? They complained, they murmured, right? They're always grumbling about something. They're always taking their eyes off the Lord and focusing on their temporal situation. So the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They're confused. How can this be? 
But what's interesting, do they really dig into this and try to find out who he really is? Do you see them going and asking Mary, Mary, tell us about your son. What's up with this? He's saying he's from heaven, right? Do they do that? I mean, she probably could be found. It's like when Jesus was born and they knew that the Savior of the world would be born in Bethlehem, the scribes. Remember when the Magi came and they asked where the Savior was to be born? The scribes were right there. They said, man, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It was three miles away. Did they go and see him? No. And so they don't really care. They're, They're making statements just for the sake of making statements. Like, have you ever, maybe you have a friend who you're witnessing to and you're telling them about Jesus and you're explaining the word of God a little bit and then they say, well, wait a minute, man, the Bible's a book, it's full of contradiction. You ever hear that? It's just a bunch of myths. There's, there's no, it's not true. You really think that's true? That's just a book written by man. And I would just encourage you, if you do come across folks who have that mindset, some of us might have been in that mindset before, start asking questions. You know, learn from Jesus. You don't always have to explain everything. Maybe you ask them questions. Well, why do you think it contradicts itself? Can you show me? I've sat across many men who've made that statement, and when I challenge them on it, and I say, well, show me a contradiction, you know what they say? I don't know. (laughs) They probably watched a YouTube video, right? And someone who said it's not true. As Christians, we don't always have to be so defensive, right? We, we got the truth. You show me why it's not true. Many, maybe you've heard of Josh McDowell. Anyone hear of him before? Josh McDowell was, was a, an atheist, lived a very difficult life, was an atheist. And when he went to college, he set out to disprove Christianity. And his goal was to disprove specifically the resurrection, And he went over to Europe, and he's searching all the libraries, manuscripts, all this stuff. He comes back to the States, and and it wasn't so much what it caused him to make that final decision, but it helped. And he came to believe that Jesus was who he says he was. He could not disprove the resurrection, no matter how hard he tried. And he tried hard. And so we have this truth as Christians that we can hold on to. Go to verse 43 with me, if you will. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, and notice again the language, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now there's a couple ways to look at this first. There's a couple ways to translate this. Some who hold, uh, we'll say Calvinistic doctrine, look at this, and they look at the verb draws, and they realize sometimes this word is used to mean to drag, like you're dragging a net, okay? Like you have fish and you're just dragging that net. And so they read this verse as saying, no one can come to me unless the father first drags him and I will raise him up, meaning the one who's been dragged, (laughs) at the last day. But there's a problem with that interpretation. And the problem is Jesus will use this exact same verse later on in, in John's gospel in chapter 12 when he says this. He said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, okay? I don't see Jesus dragging all men to himself, right? 
It's probably better translated enable. And in other words, no one's going to come to Jesus unless the Father enables that person. And the one who comes to Jesus, he will raise up in the last day. It's a little bit more balanced way to approach that text of Scripture. And that's encouraging, right? In other words, if you come to Jesus, if you turn to Jesus with your heart, he has a promise for you. And that is he will raise you up in the last day. He will give you an everlasting hope. He will give you eternal life if you turn to him. It's encouraging. Amen? I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay? In other words, he's getting at this. If the people didn't receive the word of the Father, the law, the prophets, then no sign in the world would cause them to believe in Jesus, no matter what he did. That's why he's not going to perform another sign for them at this point. In fact, Jesus himself said, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they won't even believe a man if he's resurrected from the dead, right? And so if they won't believe the word of God, it doesn't matter what sign you show them. Maybe you've seen people and they say, if he just shows me a sign, then I'll believe. Well, the problem is, if they don't believe the word, then they're not going to believe the sign. It's not that simple. You know, sometimes in church, maybe you've been to churches where everything's about signs and wonders, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. The problem with that, number one, is it gets old after a while, right? Because you're always looking for the next sign and wonder, whatever that may be, or you'll make up signs and wonders. But the problem with signs and wonders is they really don't build faith like we think they would. What builds faith? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so Jesus is saying, if you would have accepted the Father and his revelation, guess what? You would have accepted me. But your rejection of me shows that you've rejected the Father. You've rejected his word. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, and most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. So this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world." And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is where I want to, fi- we're, we're going to finish uh, this section here, but I, I want to point out two things that Jesus is doing here. But the first thing, number one, is he's saying some difficult language, right? He's saying, I want you to, th- this is my body, this is my flesh, I want you to eat it. Now, do you think he's speaking literally here? Do you think that he wants people to literally eat his flesh? At this point. But the Jewish pe- people, are, they're, they're confused. What does he mean by this? And it's not going to get any easier, actually. In fact, he's only going to, uh, he's only going to make things more difficult. Verse 53, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, if you know anything about the Jews, you tell them to drink blood. This is not easy. 
This is not popular statements right now. Because for the Jewish person, the blood is sacred, right? In fact, everything that they ate had to be kosher. You had to get rid of the blood. It had to be cooked a certain way. And so as he's saying this hard statement, again, we're going to get to this. There's a reason why Jesus is doing this. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And so what Jesus is doing here, it's, again, is he being literal? No. No. <laughs> That'd be cannibalism. I don't think he's encouraging us to be cannibals, right? But what he's doing here is he's already building his case. In other words, he's, he's saying what he's already said in verse 35 when he said, He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Coming in verse 35 is the same as eating his flesh, which means they'll never hunger. Believing in verse 35 is the same as drinking his blood, which means they'll never thirst. He's amplifying what he's already told them, but they had already rejected what he had already told them, right? They didn't receive what he had said beforehand. Remember, they had followed him eight miles, but when he began to speak to them, they weren't ready for him to be the bread from heaven. They just wanted the physical bread. And so, what he's doing is he's, he's taking things a step higher. He's going a step further here. He's using very descriptive language with an intent. And this, this wouldn't be very uh, popular in his day as it's not popular in our day. Have you ever read this text and think, what the heck is Jesus doing here? Or maybe you put yourself in the disciples' shoes and you're like, Jesus, it's time to cool it, Jesus. Like, you're going a little bit too far here. Why is he doing this? Why is he using such graphic language to try to make a point? It just doesn't make sense. And so verse 57, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, Oh, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And notice verse 66. This is a very sad verse. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked away and walked with him no more. So the first thing I just want us to see here, why did Jesus amplify his language? It's because of this. And by the way, this is not something that you're going to find in a church, church growth seminar, right? Like, 
drink my blood, eat my flesh. It's not seeker-sensitive. But what Jesus is doing is people who've already rejected his message, they've already rejected the signs he's shown them, they've already hardened their heart, he's using very difficult language to further harden their hearts so that they won't follow him for the wrong reason. Does that make sense? 5,000 people flocking towards him. With our American mindset, we'd be like, hallelujah revival, here we are. (laughs) And then he goes on talking about his flesh and blood, and people walk away. But he's, he's solidifying their decision. They would not receive the Father, therefore they would not receive him. They rejected Moses, even though they thought they received Moses. And he's solidifying their decision. He's hardening their hearts. And, it's, and there's a purpose to this. There's, there's a higher purpose to why he's doing this. The greatest reason why he's doing this is the verse I had quoted earlier uh, from John chapter 12. And in that verse... He said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You see, the other reason why he's hardening their hearts is because he understands there's a path that he has to follow, and that path leads to a cross. And he came to his very own, and what did John say? His very own did not receive him. And God hardens their hearts. Why? So that Jesus Christ would be rejected, despised, and ultimately betrayed by his own people, so that he would die on a tree at Calvary so that God could extend his salvation to us. That's what God is up to here. And it's so much greater than, you know, you read the story and you think, what is he doing? All these people are leaving him. But his focus is on a, on a hill called Golgotha where he would redeem the sins of mankind. And because of him hardening these hearts, because of him drawing people this way, it allows us, most of us I'm assuming here are Gentiles, to receive the gospel. And Paul, if you're interested, in Romans chapter 11 actually goes into this and explains what God is doing in the hardening of the hearts. Eventually, someday Israel will receive Jesus as their Savior. Amen? We're looking forward to when he returns. We realize he's coming back for his people. We realize he hasn't forsaken Israel. He's always been faithful to them, and he always will be. But we are benefactors of him doing this work. Praise the Lord. He is so amazing, and he's so good. And we'll close with our last verses here. After all those disciples walked away, never to follow him anymore. Notice verse 67. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, Peter understood that Jesus is the bread. And you may be around people, you know, you you might be around people who even claim to be Christians, and it's all about getting the bread. But my question for us this morning Is Jesus the bread in your life? Have you allowed him to be the bread of life, the one who gives life, the one who we're really looking after 
when in fact we get distracted by the crumbs of bread. And it's not that he doesn't care about the bread, right? The, the needs, right? He had compassion on the multitudes. He fed the 5,000 when he saw that they were hungry. But he realized they couldn't follow him just for the handouts. They had to follow him for who he is. And my prayer this morning, I trust that we've made that decision that Jesus Christ is the bread of life, that he gave his life for us so that we could have eternal life. If you've never made that decision, uh, we would love to meet with you after the service uh, to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways. Lord, we look at this text of scripture and sometimes we think, what is he doing? Why would he drive people away from him? Why would he say things that would cause people to walk away and possibly never return? But Lord, we see that you are so much higher. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways, Lord. You are so much greater. You are so much higher. You are so much more wonderful than what our hearts or our minds can ever conceive. And God, I pray that you would help us to see you as the bread of life, Lord, that you are the one who came down from heaven, Lord, and you gave your life for us, Lord, so that we might find true rest, true life, Lord. So we praise you, we thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.